title of this message is What No One Likes to Hear, because the topic that we have to study today is probably the biggest challenge to the message of the Bible and to the work of evangelism. Over the past few weeks, and we even just sang about it, we've talked about the state of the world and about how it seems to be pointing to the Lord's return like never before, and then we talked about the need to be living examples of the presence of the Lord and the change that he makes in our lives. I was talking to my friend, Pastor Toledo, down at Chicago Tabernacle yesterday. That's a church many of us love and we share a ministry calling with. But he and I were talking and he was saying how he believes that this is really a time of separation for the church, that the Lord is calling us and challenging us to stand for what we believe and to be very distinctive in what are very increasingly strange and sobering times now with the kind of attack on Libya and the strange things that are happening in the Middle East and all that's going on, Japan, everything else, it's just a very odd and interesting time. And as believers in that, uh, I believe there's nothing more important to be able to stand for the Lord and to be able to be distinctive than to hold to a biblical gospel, to be strong in the word of God, to be unashamed in defending it and teaching it, because to not do that, to not stand for the word, to not hold it as true, to not treat it literally uh, as we should, and to not rightly divide it, really is an affront to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit wrote it, and he expects us to study it and know it and live by it. And that means that there's no room for compromise and there's no room to adapt the text to fit our culture or to somehow make ourselves less accountable to the Lord. The Bible says of itself that it's living and active and powerful, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, and that it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, that verse is why a lot of people avoid it. And that verse is why a lot of people selectively alter it to, to fit their own comfort level. They pick out what they want to hear, they avoid the rest, and they don't allow themselves to fall under the conviction of it, or, or they alter it in such a way that the conviction is lessened. So the challenge before us as believers is to study the Word, to know the Word, and to live by the Word, and then to take it and share it with integrity to communicate it as it is, to be honest and loving without intentionally alienating people, without pushing the way for the message of the gospel, because the message of the gospel um, is an offense to some, and yet it is so attractive and so wonderful and so able to change lives that we need to present it with great love and with great honesty and with great boldness. Now, the difficulty in doing that comes on two fronts. The first front is when we are strongly opposed by the world to the point, as Paul's going to talk about this morning in 2 Thessalonians, to the point of persecution and hardship, which some believers around the world are facing this morning. Some believers are having to meet quietly and privately, and, and they're having to do so because uh, there's a threat on their lives. We don't face that yet in America. We're able to come and meet openly and sing and praise God and open his word and study. But some believers around the world aren't. And when that opposition is there, it's very hard, it's not impossible, 
but it's more difficult to stand for the Word of God. So that's the first level of opposition. The second difficulty comes when there's teaching within Christianity that contradicts the gospel. And the problem here is that it puts us in a position to have to defend biblical truth among ourselves rather than focusing our time on taking the gospel to other people. And what that does is it creates a discrepancy in our witness and it causes those who need to hear the gospel to look at us and say they can't even get their act together. They can't even agree on what their Bible says and they're contradicting each other and, and arguing with each other about what it really means and that's inconsistent and I don't care. Now Paul faced both. He faced opposition from the outside throughout Acts and really in just about every city that he went to he faced people that didn't want to hear his message and that opposed him. He also faced difficulty and, and uh, argument within the church, specifically in Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus, where people debated Scripture and told him that he was wrong to be preaching and teaching what he did. And, and he was frustrated by that, but he never backed down on it. Look at what he wrote in this chapter, 2 Thessalonians 1, in response to this difficulty, in response to the opposition people are facing. Let's start in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecution and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Now, in verses 8 to 10, which we're going to look at in greater depth this morning, Paul lays out an unmistakable argument that the Lord will honor those who persevere in their trust in Christ. And he is also just as clear that there is a penalty for those who reject him, and that penalty is eternal destruction. Now, for the sake of us really understanding what we're talking about this morning, and so there's no uncertainty and no equivocation in our doctrine, we need to know what those two words, eternal destruction, mean. Eternal means without beginning or end, never to cease. Eternal means without beginning or end, never to cease. And destruction means death and to be destroyed. So I want to reread, starting in the middle of verse 7, with, with that literal definition in there. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, Dealing out retribution. The word retribution means revengeful punishment. He'll deal out revengeful punishment to those who do not know God and to who do not obey the gospel 
of our Lord Jesus. In other words, they reject Christ's offer of salvation. These will pay the penalty of unending death being destroyed without it ever ending. Now this week, a book will be released by one of the most popular, influential, and controversial pastors in Christianity, especially popular among the younger generations. And the author is making a purposeful attempt to reshape our understanding of the concept of judgment and of hell because in his words, quote, a staggering number of people have been taught that a few select Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance of everything, anything better. It's been clearly communicated to many that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. This is misguided, toxic, and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear, unquote. He also says that those who interpret the Bible the way we do can, quote, believe their story of heaven and hell, but it's not a very good story. I wasn't aware it was a story or that it has to be easy or pleasant in order to be true. So his bottom line is this, quote, hell is both a present reality for those who resist God and a future reality for those who die unready for God's love. Hell is what we make of heaven when we cannot accept the good news of God's forgiveness and mercy, but hell is not forever. God will have his way. How can his good purposes fail? Every sinner will turn to God and realize he's already been reconciled to God in this life or in the next. There will be no eternal conscious torment. God says no to injustice in the age to come, but he does not pour out wrath, and he certainly will not punish for eternity, unquote. Now, let me be very clear this morning. I'm not here to do a book review. We're here to study biblical theology. I have no intent whatsoever to attack or even criticize another pastor. And that's why I'm purposely not giving you his name. I'm purposely not telling you the name of the book. I don't want to give it that much attention. He is popular enough. He has 20 to 30,000 downloads of his sermons a week. So his influence is powerful. But with the influence that's powerful comes a responsibility to make sure that you are careful what you teach. And that's really the issue because he's doing one of two things. Either he's pandering to his crowd in order to be controversial and sell books, or he actually believes what he's saying. And it has to be the second because this is not a book that just lobs out a theory for us to think about. It is an attempt to reshape biblical theology. Now let's understand this. This point right here is absolutely crucial to biblical theology. This is a fundamental of our faith that's at the core of the gospel and cannot be ignored. And we're told as believers that we must be discerning in the last days and to know that false teachers will be rampant and we have to know the word of God well to be able to know what is right and what is wrong. I heard a great analogy this week that my wife told me. She said, when you accept what someone teaches without verifying it, it's like getting in a car 
in, in a taxi with a cabbie in a strange city and not knowing where you're going. He can take you wherever he wants. You don't even know whether it's right or wrong. You don't know if he's taking you somewhere to, heal, uh, to hurt you or kill you. You have no clue because you're unfamiliar with the right direction. But when you do know the right way, you can tell if there's even a slight deviation. You can tell, hey, I don't want to go down 16th Street. We need to be going south on 31. You know which way to go. And that's what Scripture does. Knowing Scripture and comparing Scripture to Scripture allows us to understand what exactly God's saying because Scripture cannot contradict itself. Now, we have to hear the warning that God gives us. And we have to be absolutely careful in this day and age with our theology and our teaching that we don't adapt to the culture in order to be relevant. I need you to really hear what I'm saying right now. Jesus never adapted the message to his audience. Peter and John and James and, and Paul never adapted their message for the audience. So how many of us know that we don't have the liberty to do it either? One of the problems with taking this stand of everyone saved in the end, no matter what, because God's too loving to let us be punished forever, is that it's a cultural adaptation. It's a spiritually palatable concept for a culture that does not want to take responsibility and does not want to have any spiritual accountability. But Paul says in 2 Timothy that there is a time that's coming, and I believe we're in it now, when people will not endure sound doctrine. They'll want to have their ears tickled. They'll want to accumulate teachers in accordance with their own desires who will turn aside from truth and turn to myths. Now what Al and I were talking about yesterday as pastors is how incredibly sobering it is that we're actually living in the time of that verse. That this has changed, that it's no longer the way it was, that now we're actually seeing 2 Timothy 4 being fleshed out. And there is substantial evidence that this is exactly what people want to hear. That they don't really want accountability, that they don't really, we actually, let me include us in it, we don't really want reality, we don't really want accountability, we don't want spiritual responsibility. There's a reason why personal and governmental debt is past the point of no return. People don't want to live within their means. And the government doesn't want to say no to spending. It doesn't want to stop indulging itself. And it doesn't want to say no to the people that keep reelecting them. There's a reason why electronics are so prevalent. Why people always have earphones or cell phones or, or something attached to them where they don't have to talk to somebody else. If you watch in a restaurant or sit in a mall or an airport, watch how many people are not actually engaged in conversation. They can be sitting across from each other and doing the texting. It's an escape. There's a reason why divorce is more common than lasting marriage, why culture says that the vows that you take at the altar really aren't permanent. You don't have to keep trying if it gets difficult just find somebody else that's understand you that's easier and more attractive where there's no obligation. There's even a reason why newspapers have declined, why the evening news isn't a big deal. It's not because we have 8,000 channels. 
It's because people really don't want to watch the truth. So change it to something else that, that allows me to escape some reality show that's not really reality, but, but it allows me to go somewhere else so I don't have to deal with what's actually going on. We really have become a see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil culture. And if we just ignore it, it'll go away. And even Christianity has gotten in on the act. Somehow we've convinced ourselves that the best strategy to draw people to the Lord is to soften God's word to make it palatable. But we have done a disservice to the very people that we're trying to reach with the gospel. We've insulted their intelligence. We've said, you can't handle this, so, so we're going to be less than honest about it. We're going to just give you the parts that will sound good to you and, and, and forget your spiritual curiosity, forget that you actually can understand what this word says or, or that you can fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that's really the key. Do we believe in the Holy Spirit? Do we believe in the work that he does in calling people to himself? Or do we think that we have to somehow massage the word so that people will somehow come to it? And the stakes to this are huge. Either we mislead people by telling them what they want to hear, or we are honest with them as somebody was with us, and we tell them the truth, and we ask the Holy Spirit to speak to their mind and convict their hearts so they'll receive the gospel. There are only two options. Either we're dishonest or we're honest. Now, for this particular issue, thank you for allowing me to, to give that kind of long segue. Go back to verse 9 of chapter 1. And we want to focus this morning just on one sentence from the text. Because it lays the groundwork for contradicting this theory that a loving God will not eternally punish those who reject Christ and reject his offer of salvation. Nowhere in this text is there even the remotest suggestion that this is temporary. That's why I took the time to say, here's what eternal means, and here's what destruction means. Eternal means never ceasing. There is no latitude in the Greek language for that word to be interpreted any other way. This is not a temporary word. It's not a subjective word. There's nothing about it that says mm, it's not really never-ending. It's kind of never-ending. The word means never-ending. And the message is clear and direct. Verse 8, rejecting the gospel leads to verse 9, eternal destruction. But verse 4, if you trust in Christ, and verse 12, accept his grace, you will have eternal life. It's the gospel. It's very, very straightforward. But let's, let's argue the point for a minute. Outside of this text, how do we know that God's love isn't so compelling that no one can resist it forever? And how do we not know, as the author says, that his love will not eventually melt even the hardest of hearts? How do we not know that in the end, everybody's saved? Well, even though it's difficult to talk about, let's think through it logically and theologically. I'm going to give you six points here. And I want to encourage you to write these down. Look at some of the verses I'm going to give you. Because I want you to think through this 
uh, as much as I need to continue to think through it. If no one is punished eternally for rejecting God's love on earth, and if no one is judged or punished eternally for denying Christ, if we can be saved after death, then there are six things at least that have to be true. If this philosophy that everybody gets saved in the end, that hell is not eternal, that there's really no lasting judgment on people, that in the end, God's love will compel everybody to be saved. They'll get it in the long run. If that's true, then six things have to be true. Number one, the Bible doesn't matter. If that's true, the Bible doesn't matter. And it actually doesn't make sense. It has to be inaccurate because it contradicts itself and presents a very confusing message. And it raises a number of questions. One question would be, why would God even give us a Bible to teach us about himself and about holiness and about our sin? Why would he give us a law to follow? Why would he have told the Israelites, you need to obey my law, when it was obvious they weren't going to be able to, but anyway, it doesn't matter because his love is going to save everybody in the end, whether we obey or not. Why would he introduce the concept of sacrifice for sin if the, the sin isn't going to hold? If we're not going to be accountable for it in the long run, that, then why even bother with introducing the sacrifice and remission and redemption and the covering of the blood? And for that matter, why did Christ even come? Why would there be a cross and a resurrection? Because it really has no effect. We don't really have to be saved from anything because ultimately his love is going to draw us to get it right and to run to him from our own personal hell. And on top of this, what the Bible says about God's punishment is false. We all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Twenty verses later, in John 3.36, he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Great, we know that, John 3.16. But, he who does not obey the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God abides on him. And the word abides there means remains and never dies. So he who believes, John 3.16, greatest verse in the Bible, has eternal life. He who trusts what Christ has done is saved forever. There's no turning back. God holds them as his own and gives the promise of eternal life to them forever. Wonderful. Amen. But he who rejects that will not see life because God's wrath will remain and never die. Revelation 20-21 to says that those who face God's judgment are thrown into the lake of fire where the torment never ends. There's never even a hint that there's a second chance after death, only that the judgment is irreversible. So if this theory of everyone gets saved is right, the problem with Scripture isn't just one of confusion. The problem of Scripture is that it makes the Bible inconsistent and contradictory and unreliable. If it isn't true about judgment and hell, then where do we stop? What else is it not true about? And how do we even know that God's love is true? Because if one part's wrong, then everything is suspect. 
It's either completely true, reliable, infallible, inerrant, inspired, or it's not. There is absolutely no gray area with Scripture. Second, if everyone is saved eternally, if no one's punished, then second, the cross doesn't matter. Christ was wasting his time in coming here. There was no point of him dying for sin. There was no point of him rising again to defeat it because sin has no cost and no permanence. We're all saved in the end. It'll just take some longer to figure it out and they'll have to deal with more discomfort than other people because they were stubborn. That's the bottom line. Now, there are so many ways we could address this. And the frustration of studying this week is I literally wanted to preach for like three hours, but I didn't figure that would take very well. So you're going to have to study some of these passages on your own. That's a good thing, right? But let's get to the easiest and most logical fallacy of this thought. If God's love wins and everybody is saved, then that applies to everything and everybody. Everyone has to be forgiven Everyone has to be redeemed eternally when they finally come to their senses. And that includes the devil. Because if everybody's got to be saved, then the devil's got to be saved. At some point, he's going to have to respond to God's love and get saved from what he has done. And eventually, hell has to be emptied completely. Now, if that thought strikes you as absurd and unbiblical, it's because it is. There is absolutely nowhere in the Bible that says the devil is released from eternal torment or that he has any remorse whatsoever. And there is no record in the Bible that somebody moves from hell to heaven. Turn for a second over to Luke chapter 16. And let's verify this. Because I don't want you to just take my word for it this morning. Let's see what the Bible has to say. Luke chapter 16, there's a statement here that completely refutes this thought of post-mortem salvation and a transfer of location. Luke chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 23. This is the story, the parable of the rich man, Lazarus. Verse 23, in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Verse 26. And besides all this, between you and us, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Now, there are three truths here that we need to focus on in just that one verse. The first one is that the chasm is fixed. There's no melding together at some point where it's inseparable. This is a set difference. Second, even if people wish, and many in hell will regret what they have done, even if they wish, 
No one is able to go from there to there. No one's able to cross from hell to heaven. And for double emphasis, he says at the end of the verse, no one can cross over. Now, this is Jesus talking. Don't you think that if this was possible, not just for one person, but for every single person that's ever lived, don't you think Jesus would have taken this opportunity while he had a captive audience to say, this is what's going to happen in the long run. Everybody will be transferred from hell to heaven. It'll just be kind of a steady process as people figure it out and and live in regret. I would believe that he would take that opportunity in telling that parable to make that point, especially because he is just days from the cross. But he makes it very clear. The chasm is fixed. There is no crossing over. So to hold the view that you can move from one place to another not only demeans the cross, but it misrepresents God's character. There is no question, and this is a positive thing, that God is gracious and compassionate and patient and slow to anger and rich in love. But make no mistake, he will not be mocked. He will hold people accountable for their sin, and it's because of the cross that we know that if anyone isn't covered by the blood of Christ, they are not saved forever. That's not my words, that's the Bible's words. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed a man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Why would the Lord say that if he's just going to say, Oh, I was just kidding. I'm sorry. I was just, I was just messing with your brain. My love actually won't allow you, uh, allow me to punish you for hating me and rejecting me. So I'm just going to forget all of that stuff. Listen to the following verses. I want you to write down the text, look at them later. Listen how Christ is described. Isaiah 53, 5 and 10. He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging were healed. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so we might become the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the law's curse, having become a curse for us. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is the cross matters. It's where redemption was sealed and offered, but it had a cost. The cost was the shed blood of Jesus Christ for my sin and for your sin. The cross had a purpose. The cross was necessary. And if we just say, well, it doesn't matter because everybody's going to get saved anyway, then why did Christ go to the cross? Third, if this is true, God's sovereignty and authority don't matter. If this is true, God's sovereignty and authority don't matter because no one is really accountable to God's holiness. One of the arguments of universalism is that God is so much greater because he loves and saves everyone 
But I want to say this morning that that theory actually creates a very small, inadequate God. It's perfect for our culture because it's all about us. Essentially, it makes him a God who has no backbone, no right to hold his creation accountable simply because he's holy and we aren't. God cannot deny his character. He cannot be different from who he is. So he can't just say, doesn't matter, I'm holier and you're not, and you don't care about me, but I'm going to make you holy anyway just because I feel like it. He offers salvation. He expects us to respond. Now, I don't say that as somebody who, who considers himself one of the elect and chosen while everybody else is excluded. That's not my theology. I believe Christ died for all. I believe that anyone can respond to his offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I believe that because the Bible says it. Christ died for everybody. Anyone who believes, anyone who trusts can be saved. John 3.16 says that his love is proven, that he offered himself for our salvation. And I am overwhelmed every single moment of every single day that even though he has the right to send you and me to hell for our sins, he won't if we accept his salvation by putting our faith in him now. Now the gospel is true exactly as the Bible lays it out. And it says, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Not 3,000 years from now, after somebody's been in hell and finally comes to the breaking point and finally can't take it anymore and says, good, I'll give in. Okay, I get that you love me. They're going to be more defiant after 3,000 years than less defiant. God's sovereignty and authority do matter. Fourth. If this is true, if everyone just gets saved because God feels like it, then how we live doesn't matter. You can live however you want. There are absolutely no restrictions. Now, don't take what I just said out of context, okay? Preface it. If this is true, then anything goes. You're going to get saved someday anyway. doesn't matter in the long run. You'll finally come to your senses. It just depends on how long you want to be in your pit stock purgatory. Oh, I'll just hang out for a while. Oh, I'm going to suffer. You know, that stinks. Well, how much suffering will it take until your heart eventually melts to God love? Of course, the Bible never, ever, ever, ever teaches this. It never says that those who are in eternal judgment somehow become humble and repentant. And what about the people that are militantly defiant, not to mention the billions who absolutely reject Jesus Christ and think that their God is correct? What will change their minds? What doesn't the Lord, why, why doesn't the Lord just convince them of his love now? And why does the Bible talk so strongly in Hebrews 3 about repenting today? Why does it say in Hebrews 2, don't neglect so great a salvation? Why does it say in 2 Peter 3, be found blameless on the day of Christ? Why does it warn us in 1 Corinthians 6 about not inheriting the kingdom? Why does it say in Hebrews 10.31 what a fearful thing it is to fall in the hands of the living God? And why does our passage back here in 2 Thessalonians warn us that someday the king is going to come and he's going to have revenge on those who have rejected him? Why does the Bible do all that? 
And that doesn't even talk about the fact that God will reward those who have persevered in their faith and been faithful and served Him and spread the gospel as this passage told us. It's awfully convenient just to say, and in the end, everybody will come around. But it is not true. And Jude 23 says, Christian, you better be active and snatch people from the fire before it's too late. Because when they get in the fire, it is too late. So you better hustle and do the work of evangelism and draw them out because the time is coming when there won't be any more time. That leads to the fifth point. I'm almost done. If everybody gets saved in the end, then the commission that Christ gave us doesn't matter. Why would Jesus tell us that our main job is to evangelize if everybody gets saved in the final outcome? Okay, well, we might be able to save them some pain. But really, isn't it kind of futile? Because ultimately, there's nothing on the line. People might be stubborn now. They might be resistant now. They might curse us to our face. But eventually, they're going to come around. So for now, to use the vernacular, we can just chill. We're allowed to live like we want because eventually God's not going to hold us accountable for sin. Christ wasn't really serious when he said, go into the world and preach the gospel because what's the point? Look at the last thought. Go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If no one is accountable, if you can reject Christ and still be saved after death, then the last thing that doesn't matter is the presence of the Lord. If this is true, the presence of the Lord does not matter. Because verse 9 is only talking about something temporary. But I want to read it again. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, as I said, there's no nuance in the writing there. I looked at the words. There's nothing that suggests that Paul is being figurative. These are literal words that say this is final an unending separation from God. And believe it or not, even though we saw the passage in Luke, the agony and the torment of hell is not the darkness and not the flames. As unthinkable as that will be, the agony and torment of hell is separation from the presence of the Lord. We always think of hell as flames and torment and agony and darkness and wailing and crying, and it is. That's an incredibly sobering picture. But that's not the worst part of it. The worst part of it is knowing that Christ died for your sins, that you could have been saved, that God was gracious and loving and compassionate, and you rejected it, and now there's no way of going back. Notice that the verse does not say they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction by burning and rotting and agonizing in their pain. God is not focused on that part because that's not the worst. That's why fire and brimstone sermons, and I hope you don't consider this one, they don't work in the long run, even though some of us got saved that way. But it focuses on the wrong thing. 
What should terrify us, especially after all these studies of how we've seen how wonderful and powerful the presence of the Lord is, what should terrify us is the thought of not being with him for eternity. And here is what we need to be absolutely clear about. Not one of us deserves it. There is not one person in this room this morning that deserves God's love and God's redemption. We are all sinners. We're hopeless. We're lost. We're unworthy of heaven. We're unable to save ourselves. And the Bible suggests we weren't really even interested in God. But here is the absolute good news. God is loving and gracious and compassionate beyond the scope of our understanding. And seeing that we were miserable, condemned to death, and hell by our sin with no possible hope of escape on our own, he showed us mercy that we cannot fully understand or appreciate. He offered his own son as the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Christ took all of our sins on himself and he went to the cross and he died. And then he rose again to defeat sin and death and hell. And God says, I am willing to forgive you. I am willing to release you from sin. I am willing to buy you and redeem you and cleanse you and change you and declare you my own. And I'll tell you how I'm going to seal it. I'm going to put my own spirit within you. Now, 1 John 4.10 says, This is how we know what love is. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a big word that means the satisfaction of our guilt and our debt and our curse. You want to know God's love? God's love is that He sent His Son. It shouldn't take us time in hell until we realize that this is the greatest news that can ever be given. It is the most amazing offerance of deliverance that anybody could receive. And it just magnifies the awesomeness of his love that he is willing to deliver us now rather than having to go through hell and wait our time. He offers that salvation now before it's too late, before eternity is sealed. God's love and grace is there now. Now we can take our chance and there's no way of proving this guy wrong because none of us has walked through eternity yet. We can take our chance and say, well, ultimately God's love will be the one that will draw me out and I can do whatever I want, live however I want and, and just believe whatever I want because in the end, God has to save me. You can take that chance. But that's not what the Bible says. And it doesn't make sense. And it pretty much invalidates everything in the Word of God. So the question before us, I'm done, is do you know Him? Do you know Christ? Have you put your faith in Him now? Because now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. I mean this very honestly as your friend. If you've never received Christ, if you've never put your faith in Him, if your life has not changed significantly because of that decision and that desire and that saying to the Lord, God, save me from this sin. I have no hope. If you've never done that,
come talk to me after the service. Come talk to Randy. Ask the person next to you, can you tell me more about this? And if they don't know how, they'll bring you to us. Or just come and sit on the front row. Somebody will find you. But do not walk out today because you don't know what's going to happen. You can have confident assurance today that your sins are forgiven. You can have confident assurance today that God forgives you and delivers you and redeems you and calls you his own and that you will never be separated from his presence. You can have that assurance today. And for those of us who love and trust the Lord, this is the end. It's a simple message. Doesn't that make you love him even more? Doesn't that make you trust him even more that he'd be willing to do this now? He could take all of us through torment. He could also say, I love you, but I'm not forgiving any of you. He has that right. He's God. But he doesn't. Christ died for all. Anyone who receives him, to them, he gave the power to become the sons of God. That's the gospel. That's the truth. And he is so good. Praise his holy name. Let's pray together. Father, this is a difficult passage to study because it causes us to confront the reality that there is death and that death is not the end. You have made us spiritual creatures. And you have made us eternal creatures in your own image. And you have put before us the choice of life or death. We praise you this morning for your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you that you offer us redemption when we absolutely don't deserve it. We have done nothing to earn or merit your love. We have done nothing that would suggest that we would be allowed to have grace and forgiveness. Nothing. But in your infinite and unfailing love, you have offered us that redemption. But Lord, the clock is ticking. And you have said, now is the day. Now is the time to decide. Choose this day who you will serve. So, Lord, I pray for every single one of us here this morning that our hearts would be drawn in a new way to you. Lord, for someone here this morning that does not know you, that has not turned their life over to you, that is wavering on the line, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would speak to their heart, would draw them toward yourself, and that they would understand the magnificent riches of your grace the amazing fact of your love and mercy and forgiveness. And Lord, that they would not leave this morning without talking to a believer about how to be saved. And Father, for those of us that love you, Lord, drag us out of complacency. Bring conviction and stirring to our hearts. Help us to dive into your word so that we would be able to discern because the message is getting more and more muddled as the days go on every day drawing closer to your return. Confusing, strange times, Father, when you're calling your people out to stand for you. Lord, may we be a people that stands firm. 
Lord, we love you. We love your grace. We love you because you first loved us. And I pray that our lives would be compelling evidence of how much we love you. Lord, we praise you for your mercy. We praise you for what you're going to do in the days ahead. We look forward to your return. We thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus paid it all, all to him.